0: get rolling ladies and gentlemen a formal welcome to torah studies our weekly look at the torah portion this week's torah portion is kitavo and before we get started i want to mention tonight's class is sponsored by steve horowitz in a very special honor and merit of adina malka um, dina malka wishing you good health and only blessings long and healthy years happy years with good health and blessings let us all say, as we may or may not be muted, let us all say, Amen. Okay, so the Torah portion is kitavo, so here's the deal. This Torah portion contains something that is very unique and maybe not so, I don't know how to say this, not so nice, not so exciting. This Torah portion contains 98 curses, the tochacha, tohach, the 98 curses. Um, what are the 98 curses? There are 98 instances in the Torah portion where there is consequence mentioned for not keeping our end of the deal. What's the deal? What deal am I talking about here? It's the covenant between us and God. Basically, the covenant goes down, co- comes down to this. God says, I'm choosing you, and we say, we're choosing you. So it's like, we choose God, God chooses us, and that's the deal. And God says, I'm in it as long as you're in it. When you start pulling out of the deal, then I may also at least act as though I'm pulling out of the deal. Not like God ever pulls out of the deal, but God may act as though he were pulling out of the deal, and thus that precipitates the notion of negative consequences, the curses, the rebuke, known as the tochecha or klalot, whatever you want to call it in Hebrew but it's uh, it's negativity. So there's 98 instances, uh, 98 passages, that speak about consequences for us not keeping our end of the deal. Now, this is something, we're going to get into this throughout tonight's class, this is something that is a, it's not one of those warm and fuzzy parts of Torah, it's one of those more somber um, uh, Torah readings, not the whole Torah, not the whole Torah reading, but it's a big, a big chunk of this week's Torah portion is comprised of this, uh, this tocha, these, these, uh, w- these verses of rebuke and, uh, and curses and punishment. So it's, it's, it's somber. In fact, it's so somber that the Torah reader, when the Torah reader is reading the Torah, if you're in synagogue this week or if you've been there in uh, previous years, you'll hear that the Torah reader lowers his voice as he reads the Torah reading. In other words, not to like announce it and proclaim it, but reads it kind of in, a, in an undertone. That's the way. That's the way the Torah reader read, reads it. Um, the Torah portion is always read two weeks before Rosh Hashanah. When I say two weeks, what I mean is not the Shabbat right before Rosh Hashanah, but it's the Shabbat before the Shabbat before Rosh Hashanah. So, in other words, Rosh Hashanah is a little under two weeks. So we have this Shabbat and next Shabbat, and then we have Rosh Hashanah. So we don't. We never read it the, the Shabbat right before Rosh Hashanah because it's it's it is kind of a negative, it's got a negative vibe to it. We'll talk about that tonight, we'll talk about negative or positive vibes. And um, so we read it like two weeks out. One understanding of why we read it before Rosh Hashanah is that it's, uh, it acts as a cleansing agent. You know, when you want to clean something that has like a deep stain, what do you do? You scour it. You pour like boiling water in it, you know, you put hot water and you scrub it and you put some sort of harsh cleaning agents. Although. The fancier thing that you buy, the more it says, "Don't use those harsh cleaning agents on it." Right? You ever buy like a potter pan, and it says, "Don't use the uh, whatever." Anyway, the point is like this: that sometimes you need to use something a bit abrasive to clean out what needs to be cleaned out. So, in a similar way, a few weeks before Rosh Hashanah, not the Shabbos before because it's a little too close, you know, to go into Rosh Hashanah with um, with positivity. But two weeks before, we read the Etokhah, which kind of does a that helps us you know, kind of clean ourselves out, so to speak, from untoward behavior. All right, so that's a little bit about the background of the 6 portion. What we're gonna do tonight is do a few things. Number one, we're gonna learn about time travel, Jewish time travel. I hope you guys have your DeLoreans handy. I hope you've built your time machines, right? Um, what was it, 88 miles an hour? Was that, was that Flux the- Flux capacitor. Flux capacitor, yes. Yes, McFly. Wasn't that the guy's name, McFly? Yes? Man, they don't make movies like that anymore. Anywho, um, Doc, unbelievable. The tower, the watchtower. All right, I'm sure everyone knows what I'm talking about. If not, you seriously need to watch Back to the Future, one, two, and find three as well. So here's the deal. Time travel. We're going to talk about time travel tonight from a Jewish perspective. (laughs) We're going to talk about, what else we are going to talk about? We're going to talk about, um, oh, blessings or curses. Sorry, curses or really blessings. A deeper look at the curses in this restore portion. We're going to put it all together. We're going to go back to Egypt. Yeah, we were there a few weeks ago with a discussion about traveling to Egypt and moving to Egypt. We're going to go back to Egypt, this time through boats. And you'll see what I mean in a moment. And it's going to be all fun and games. All right, let's, or not until it is. So let's explore... The critical verse that gets this party started, Um, you're going to find it in your booklets. You guys have booklets. It is on page number 143. And online, it's on page 143. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? It's the same thing. Right? I bet you didn't see that coming. All right. The threat of returning to Egypt, 143. So at the... Toward the end of the 6th Torah portion, in the 6th reading, is where you have all these 98 curses that are listed. I told you the Torah reader lowers his voice when he reads these um, portents of doom. That's uh, maybe an original description, but that's uh, that's kind of what it is. And I'm, we're about to quote here, text number one, the very final, the, the very last curse of all 98 curses. The... Final of these prophecies of doom. Moses says, if you don't keep your end of the deal, this, 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 this is gonna happen. And what's the last thing? What's the like the ultimate punishment? Text number one. All right, let's do this inside. Text number one. Paul. Paul, please read text number one. And God
1: will bring you back to Egypt in ships through the way about which I said to you, you will never see it again. And there you will seek to be sold to your enemies for slaves and handmaids, but there will be no
0: buyer. Okay, so what's the ultimate curse? Is you're going to go back to Egypt on a cruise. Hmm. So stick with me here for a second. You're going to go on a cruise to Egypt. Okay, All right. And then you're going to think you're going to be sold as a slave. But no one's actually going to buy you. OK, so what's the problem? I get to enjoy um, Egypt? Like, where's the curse? By the way, I don't want to get into this, because like, I don't want to get derailed in this class, and I don't want to get too like, far. I don't, I don't want to go down too far of a rabbit hole. But trust me on this. Some of the other curses in this Torah portion are about cannibalism. It's like you'll be so hungry and so without hope that you'll end up I I I don't even I can't even say this. You know, you'll end up even compromising your own children to eat. I mean that's the extent of of the curses in this week's Torah portion. They're horrific and dark. And by the way, there are commentaries that have said that all every single one of them at some point in Jewish history has come to pass. Including the cannibalism, as re- as is recorded in scripture itself, not in the five books of Moses, in the books of the prophets, we know that this happened during the time in one of the Jewish kingdoms. It doesn't matter which king, which era, but it happened. Hold on one second. Let me just round at this point. But so, what's the point? The point is that there are horrific um, uh, 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 prophecies of of negativity that might transpire if we go down a negative path. And what's the end? Like and if all and if still it keeps on going, where's it gonna end up? Back in Egypt, by via boat, and no one's gonna buy you as a slave. And that's a punishment? Where's the where's the curse? Where's the where's the punishment? Mark, what do you have?
1: The order. I know the way the human psyche is, that we remember what was last said better than what was first said. So why was the curse last? Why would the blessings last?
0: Ah, okay. So Mark is asking a general question, which is why does God open, or Moses open the portion by saying the blessings if you do the good things, and then segue into the curses if you don't do, if you do the opposite of good things? Why not the other way around? Especially since what's last sticks with you. Maybe because he wanted the stuff to stick with us. <laughs> Maybe because he wanted it to be like. You know, a bit of a, a bit of a zinger. It's a good question, but we'll see tonight a different take on it. I don't want to give it away yet. We're going to have another way to look at the curses. That's a good. It's a good question,
1: Rabbi. Yes, I mean to me, it does seem to be the heaviest curse because you know the whole thing. Our exodus is to get out of Egypt. I mean, you know, in the forties or fifties, if we given the choice, Germany or Israel, we wouldn't say go to Germany.
0: Right. Right, you're saying that uh, Egypt was like was uh, radioactive for the Jew. Good, yes. good, good. Hold that thought. Hold that thought. We're going to come back to it. But first, we're going to we're going to venture into Rashi because the good news is <laughs> when you read Torah, you're never alone. You always have Rashi. What is Rashi? Rashi is Rab- stands, Rashi and Yud stands for Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchaki, Rabbi Shlomo the son of Yitzchak the great Torah Biblical commentary. Rashi never leaves us hanging. Rashi, you see on the side of the page here, lived from 1040 to 1105. And he has penned, or he penned, the most essential Torah commentary um, out there. So let's look at Rashi. Rashi explains why it's a curse. It seems like a vacation. You're going to Egypt. You don't have to work even. No problem. On a cruise. What's the problem? How is this a curse? Rashi explains. What are the ships? In ships. You see that text too? I'm going to read this. Text 2. In ships. Not a cruise, Rashi says. In ships of captivity. These are besfinot b'shivya. These are ships of captivity. This is worse than Gilligan's Island. Yes, we are having more 80s references as we speak. Because that was the decade. Um, Good. In ships of captivity. Let's continue, Rashi says. And there you will seek to be sold to your enemies. You will wish to be sold to them as slaves and handmaids because you wish to be spared. In other words, you hope that someone's going to find utility for you. Someone's going to find a reason for you to live. But there will be no buyer, the Torah, the, the verse ends. And Rashi explains the doom message of this because they will decree death and destruction upon you. And Rashi says, you think it's not a curse, it's a vacation. Oh, it's a curse. The boats are not cruise ships. They're boats of captivity. Slave ships, by the way, slave ships were used not that long ago. You with me on this? Yes? Slave ships, not a great place to be. So that's number one. And you're going to try to be sold. You're going you're to want to offer your services to be kept alive, but there will be no buyer. They will find no use for you. They will decree death and destruction. I mean, Donna um, mentioned before the Holocaust, Nazi Germany. We know I don't have to elaborate on this. I'm sure you've all drawn the connection already, right? When when they got, the Jews got off the trains, and there were two lines, right? One line was those that were going to work, and the other line, straight to the uh, to the gas chambers. And given the choice, one would want to be offered a chance to live and to work as opposed to the opposite option. And so this is what the Torah is saying. You're going to be taken as captives back to Egypt on slave ships. And you're going to want to be put to work because that means you're going to live. But there will be no buyer. They're not going to have any use for you. So that's the curse. So Rashi explains, uh, you think it's not a curse. Where's the curse? You read the verse, I don't see a curse. Back to Egypt on ships and there's no, and you're not a slave. So what's the problem? That's the problem. Okay, we have a verse, we have Rashi, so far so good. I want to ask two questions, which are going to open up a bit of a bigger, a bigger conversation. Question number one. I'm going to put the, uh, the text back up. If you have the booklets in front of you, please reference back to text number one. I'll put this back on the screen also for the benefit of everybody that is uh, following along on the screen. So question number one. What's the deal? What's the deal with Egypt specifically? Why does it say, look, if the curse is that you're going to be, I mean, what's the end of the, the bottom line of this curse? The, the bottom line is that, uh, that there will be death and dooms. Okay, if that's, if that's the bottom line, so why about going back to Egypt? And why going back on a ship? And why going back? And why does it say that you're gonna go back the same way, right? The same way you were told that you'll never see it again. In other words, returning back the same way that you, that you came and that you're not supposed to go back, which we spoke about a few weeks ago. Why, why are all those details relevant? Why are, they, why are they germane to the topic? It would seem like it should just say that you'll be taken captive and, and, uh, and no use will be found for you and that's it, kaput. You know, that's it. I mean, I, I'm not make, trying to make light of it. I'm saying, you know, very sadly, like, horrifically, that, that, that would be the curse. Why Egypt and why go, you're gonna go back the same way that you came and you're gonna go back on ships. Why are all these details necessary? So to, in order to understand this, this kind of, these questions kind of open up a, um, a larger conversation. And I wanna immediately jump into what Donna referenced before. And this is a very important idea. And that is, when we talk about trauma, so what is trauma many forms of trauma but what is trauma at its core trauma is pain and and um, something negative that happened in our past and trauma leaves scars you know if we ever think that we could just you know brush aside what happened to us in the past you know, life has a way of kind of, you know, oh, we'll just push it aside, no big deal. Nothing to see here. Life has a way of moving it right back into our path. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but at some point in time, life has a way of collecting all the baggage, all the, all the skeletons that we've kind of put in various closets, and uh, one day we wake up, and we're looking at, at everything head-on, and there's nowhere to go other than face it. Trauma is traumatic, hence the name trauma. One thing we know about trauma is that even as we try to move past it and we work to move past it, the most traumatic experience of trauma or one of the most traumatic experiences of trauma in the aftermath is when we face the very same actors of the original trauma. In other words, yes, life has a way of bringing stuff back and we have to deal with it, but when we encounter the very same person, or the very same scenario, or the very same, whatever it is, the context, the place in which the original trauma happened, or who perpetrated the original trauma, that brings back all sorts of, that that, that brings everything back, and that's the most most painful experience. Flashbacks. Flashbacks. Exactly. So with this, we can understand, and I think this is what Donna was saying before, why is this the ultimate curse? Why is it the final curse? Because what are we saying here? You're going to go back to Egypt. <laughs> Egypt, that's, the, that's where the trauma happened. For the Jewish people of that generation, Moses was speaking to that generation, what was the, the, what was the trauma? The trauma was slavery in Egypt. So Moses says, if you don't keep the covenant, what's going to happen is this and that and the other and the next thing and the, and the thing after that, etc. 97 curses, and the final one? Go back to Egypt. And and that's really the most painful. That's really the most painful. Because it's ripping open those old wounds. It's you know, it's like when there's um what's the word I'm looking for? A scab, a scar, whatever. And it's ripped open, you rip open a scar or a scab, what what are we ripping over? All the above? All right. When something has, you know, when there was trauma. And then it's, you know, more or less it's on its way to healing. And then it's ripped open again. That's the greatest pain. But it's more than that. Because as we said, the verse contains other details. It's not just going back to Egypt. It's going back the same way that you came out. You're going to go back. And now you're going to go back also on ships. There's also going to be a ship, a sea, um, a sea voyage as well. What, are, what are the meaning? What's the meaning of those details? So let's look in some commentaries to try to understand what it is about this about this curse that's really the reason why it's number 98, why the last one. Um, by the way, just so you know the methodology of today's class, we're going to explain how devastating this curse is, in the first half of the class. Second half of the class, we're going to explain how everything in the curses is really a blessing, and we're going to explain the positive about all of this and reread everything through a, through a completely different lens, and I'm gonna, we're going to give the, the background and the, the framework and the the foundation for understanding why it is that we're trying to read a curse as a blessing, and then we're going to get into a new way of looking at it. But first, let's let's understand the curse, and then we can flip it for the blessing. So that's that's the process. Um, let's look here now at text number three. This is from the Rebbe's talk on this uh, on this Torah portion um, that today's class is based on, and um, let's ask Adina Malka, are you up to reading? All right, don't forget to unmute. I just asked you to unmute. You got it? Yes. Amazing. Please read text number three. Every detail in the verse is not just part of one broad curse, namely that the youth will return to Egypt. Rather, each detail adds another layer of calamity. So the Rebbe explains that the verse is not just saying general trauma of going back to Egypt, Right, which we've just kind of, I just laid out. But it's more than that. As I mentioned, but now we see it inside as the Rebbe articulates it, not only is it a general revisiting trauma going back to Egypt, it's every detail of that last verse of the curses, every detail contains another element, another um, twist of the knife, so to speak, another, another, you know, another uh, point of pain in this, uh, this tocha, in this curse. So we're going to understand this. So the first, of course, the first message is going back to Egypt. Egypt, we don't want to go back to Egypt. Okay, so that's point number one. Then we have the Torah mentions also going back on the same journey. The same journey that you left, you're going to go back the same way. Why is that traumatic? Let's take a look at text number four. Let's take a look at text number four. Um, You know what? Let's ask our dear sponsor for tonight, um, Steve. Steve Horowitz, are you up to reading? Yep. Amazing. Text number four, please take it away.
1: Who led you through that great Nawsuk desert in which there were snakes, vipers, and scorpions, and drought, where there was no water? Who brought water to you out of solid rock?
0: So Moses, thank you. Moses, in the beginning of Deuteronomy, this is not this week's Torah portion, but this is from Deuteronomy. Moses is recounting and recalling the journeys of the last 40 years. And Moses says, you know, God is amazing, We love, God is awesome, God is the best. You know, what did God do? God is the one who led you, and that's how, why the dot, dot, dot. God is the one who led you through the great and awesome desert in which there were snakes, vipers, scorpions. In other words, God took us out of Egypt, right, that we know. But then God took us 40 years through a very treacherous journey. Um, you know, what's the most dangerous place on earth? Like Nat, does anybody know? Like, what's the most dangerous place on Earth to be outdoors, or what's a dangerous place on Earth?
1: Afghanistan, underground well,
0: Hold on, okay, well, hold on one second, one second. <laughs> Afghanistan, yes. First of all, yes. But I, I want to speak from a from a natural perspective, not because of human beings making choices, but um, like Death naturally. Valley. Amazon rainforest. Amazon Rainforest. What valley. is it? Oh, Death Valley. Death Valley. Death Valley, okay. What else? Give me some more naturally... Mount Everest. Underground, underwater caves. Oof. Ooh, I'm getting claustrophobic just thinking about that right now. Whew! Um, (laughs) Underground, underwater caves. Wow, Mount Everest. That is a treacherous place. If I'm not mistaken, and I know I'm not mistaken because I've read articles and maybe seen pictures about this, but like when you're climbing Mount Everest, I want to say you, when one climbs Mount Everest, first of all, Good luck. Second of all, I'm pretty sure you step over and around remains. Yeah, no, legit. I mean, I'm not wrong here, Ed. Yeah, no, 100% legit. There's people frozen.
1: decay,
0: yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. What are the guys? Sherpas, right? Sherpa. I, growing up, I thought sherpa was like a warm coat. Wasn't that sherpa also? Isn't that? It is right
1: The frozen
0: dessert. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Strawberry Sherpa. Okay, so (laughs) (coughs) all right, but let's get back. So the Torah tells us in Deuteronomy 815, at the beginning of this book of Deuteronomy, Moses, Moses recounted to the people about how great God is for having led us through this really dangerous place. If you thought Egypt was dangerous, the desert wasn't any less dangerous. not based on human actors, but based on, okay, first of all, listen, apologies for all, for everyone here who's outdoorsy. Jews, how do I say this? Jews are not necessarily always the best campers, campers, right? When I mean campers, I don't mean like kids in camp, but I mean like like, glamping is one thing. Like, okay, if we're going and we have a thing, like, what is it? Jet Stream? Is that what it's called? Jet Stream? Did I make that up? Airstream. 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 Is there a jet stream? Is that a plane? I think it's a plane. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> okay, then I'm talking about the plane. I'm kidding. The Airstream, right? You got that thing, or you, yeah, or you get, like, a hotel set up and, like, near a campgrounds, or you, you know, you pay for a safari in, in Africa, but you're, like, you know, super well, like, luxurious, you know, five-star accommodations. Okay, that's, like, the closest. But, like, to really be out there, e- yeah, watch the video. Yeah, watch Discovery Channel or whatever it is. We'll, we'll catch it that way. It's a little bit, you know, Jews and the wild. It's, you know, whatever. There's an app for that, but not, not actually being out there. So, so that's one thing. Second of all, we're talking about 3,300 years ago. Okay, the equipment, okay, equipment, was there equipment 3,300 years ago? I'm going to venture, I'm going to raise my hand and say no, no equipment 3,300, 3,300 years ago. What did they wear on their feet? What did that look like, what did the clothing look like 3,300 years ago? I don't know exactly, but it wasn't sophisticated, you know, heat-reflective, wind-repellent, dust-covering situationals. I mean, I'm sure they figured stuff out. I'm, I'm not like saying, ooh, we're smart, they weren't. I'm sure they figured stuff out. But the technologies just have been evolving. And so you can imagine a people, two million strong Jews. Oh, 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 I should mention Jews love to fetch. Yeah, are we there yet? Pales in comparison to what is the potential kvetchari when it comes to Jews. Camping in the desert 3,300 years ago, 2 to 3 million people en masse. So, like, there's a lot of, a lot of energy going on with this, with this experience. And the bottom line is, if they thought Egypt, I don't know, they, we, if one thinks that Egypt was dangerous, the desert was no less dangerous. Let's just, let's, let's just be very honest here. To live in a desert 3,300 years ago, just out there, was supremely dangerous, which is why we can understand why the people were constantly fearful, and why many, on many occasions they actually said to Moses, wouldn't we be better off heading back to Egypt, where at least uh, we were slaves, but at least we could live on some level, right? So. So that's what's going on. And Moses is saying, you know what the greatness of God is? I mean, not exclusively, but one of the expressions of the greatness of God is that God led us through this desert because this was the end of the four years. These last 40 years, Moses says, God led us through this desert. Snakes, vipers, scorpions, drought. There was no water. Water came from a rock which traveled with the people, a miracle. There were clouds of glory, the whole shebang. The clothing grew with them, all these miracles, because otherwise there's no way they could survive. It's just not possible. And they survived because, God, because of God's protection. Um, let's take a look at it, the next text. Text number five. I'll read this one. Um, let me pull it up on the screen. Uh, this comes from the Midrash. How much did the clouds of glory surround the Jewish people in the desert? Seems like a very interesting question, but let's see the answer. Rabbi Hoshia said, from seven different directions. Now you're thinking seven directions. Huh, that rabbi didn't know math. But he's going to explain in a moment. Four directions of the world. One up, So that's um, right left front back one above them another beneath them that's a total of six if you're counting at home the home edition Um, and a final seventh direction that would go ahead of them a distance of seven days so just understand what's going on here there was cloud cover to the right to the left front back top bottom That's six Plus, seven days' journey ahead of them, there was this cloud. Okay, not necessarily a a literal cloud, but some sort of divine protection cloud that would go ahead and, look, the cloud, this cloud, it calls it a cloud, would kill off snakes, scorpions, and other dangerous elements, and back inside, as well as remove rocks. That's a very handy cloud. Talk about cloud navigation. Yes, in the cloud. All right, everything's in the cloud nowadays. That is... GPS, godly positioning system. Yeah, okay. So basically, this was the way that the people survived. If there was a valley, it would raise the ground. The cloud would. If there was a hill, it would flatten it and make the path straight. This cloud did it all. This cloud did it all. Yes. Now, here's the deal. The people knew. Um, that without the cloud, without divine protection, they were not able, there, there was no way for them to survive. Like there would have been no way for them to traverse the desert those 40 years without the divine protection. Just not not possible, not happening. Thus, stay with me here on this logical, let me, let me just bring it back around to our topic. So in the final curse of so these 98 curses, in our Torah portion, Kitavo, Moses says, what's going to be the ultimate punishment? That you're going to be sent Back to Egypt. Egypt, okay, that's number one, trigger number one. The same way that you came, what does that mean, the same way that you came? Through that desert that you just traversed for 40 years. You're gonna go through that same desert. But this time, in a state of divine, how shall we say this, unfriendliness, when God is not carrying you and protecting you because now God is not happy because you've turned away from God. So you can imagine that trip back through the desert is gonna be. A little treacherous. Are you with me on this? Does this logic make sense? So Moses tells them that what is gonna happen with this with this final curse, right? God forbid, it's going back to Egypt, trigger number one, the same route that you took. And you know how dangerous dangerous it was, and you only had God's protection, that's the only way you made it. And now you're gonna go back that same route. People are like, We're goners. The final point is on ships. What are ships? We know what ships are, but slave ships are a unique form of torture. You know, I'm not, I'm, I don't feel comfortable ranking torture and pain, ranking abuse, ranking um, enslavement. But I'll tell you this, being locked up and cooped up on a ship with nowhere to go, is pretty devastating, being out at, at sea, you know, being marched through a desert, you know, walking or whatever, you're moving, what, there's some movement. But just being herded together on a ship is a particularly intense form of, 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 um, of uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for, of anguish, of pain, of, of torture, etc. And thus, the commentaries explain how each element of this verse in the final curse expresses something very, very horrific. Again, three points, Egypt, going back the same way, and going on ships, which they didn't take ships on the way out, but it's a combination of land and sea travel in the, in the curse. Each one has its own hardship. So number one, back to Egypt, that point of trauma, you hear the word Egypt, as Donna said before, and you, you cringe and you shake, Egypt is like, no, 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 anything but Egypt. The same way that you came out, and you know how dangerous it was on the way, on the way out, um, but you had God's protection, now you won't. And, and, and to compound that, there's also going to be an added element, slave ships, which was known to be a very horrific experience. So this is the nature of the curse. All right, wonderful. So thank you very much. We all came out to a Torah studies class, and now we're learning doom and gloom. Great. Sounds very inspiring. What are we supposed to do with this? I told you there's two halves of the class. So I didn't say it's exactly going to be 50-50 time-wise, but there are two halves. We've now concluded part one of tonight's class. Part one is to analyze a verse in the Torah, understand it through classic commentaries. But the second half of the class, which begins right now, is to re-examine this verse from a completely opposite perspective. And I mentioned this twice already in tonight's class. The perspective that we're about to take is that these curses, all 98, are on a deeper level or can be understood on a deeper level to not be curses, but rather blessings. That each curse contains a blessing. And you might say to yourself, is it a blessing or is it a curse? If it's a curse, it's a curse. Why does it have to be a blessing? So I want to tell you a story. In fact, I'm going to read to you a story. This is from text number seven in your books. Text number seven, page 147. Take a look. The Alta Rebbe. This is a story told by our Rebbe, the Rebbe of our generation in Hayom Yom for the 17th day of El. So here is what it says. The Alta Rebbe, the founder of Chabad himself was the regular Torah reader in his synagogue. You know, the Torah reader is the guy is the usually a rabbi, often a rabbi who reads from the Torah scroll, you know, Mondays, Thursdays, Shabbat, etc. So the outer Rebbe himself was the Torah reader in his synagogue. Once he was away from Liyajna, that's where he lived. Once he was away from Liyajna on the Shabbat of Parashat Kitavu. This week, Kitavu, he was away. And the Mittler Rebbe, his son, who uh, succeeded him as Rebbe, but he was then a young boy, the Mittler Rebbe, then not yet bar mitzvah, heard the Torah reading from another another Torah reader. Are you with me on this? In other words, his father, the Altar Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, would always read the Torah every Shabbat. That year, Kitabu, this Shabbat, he, the, the father was out of town, so there was another Torah reader who read the Torah. Listen to this. His anguish at the curses in the section of, of admonition, in other words, the 98 curses, his pain caused him so much heartache that on Yom Kippur, the Altar Rebbe doubted whether his son would be able to fast. Let me explain that. His son was obviously not, well, not bar mitzvah, it says clearly, but he was obviously close to bar mitzvah. Maybe he was, 11 or 12 years old so he was at the age where he was already you know he was not obligated to fast in Yom Kippur but he was already fasting but he got so sick and I have to explain he got physically sick hearing the 98 curses this week's Torah portion that weeks later because Yom Kippur is in about two and a half weeks weeks later there was a question medically if the child was fit to fast because he was so ill listen to the rest of the story when they asked this young boy, this boy, the middle Rebbe, don't you hear this Torah portion read every year? He replied as follows. And this is the line, the line of the week. When father reads, one hears no curses. <speaking in> ha'aba <Hebrew> when father reads, <speaking> in, <Hebrew> in Yiddish. You don't hear any curses. What does that mean? Every year his father read the Torah portion. And every year he heard the same 98 curses. But he was never so, he never got ill, he never got sick because of it. Why did he get sick that year? Because his father didn't read it. And whoever read it from the Torah, read it like a curse. But when his father read it, his father read it differently. Two people can say the same words of critique. One, they could read the same script and when it comes out of the mouth of one of them, you hear it as an attack. And when the second one reads it, same, says it the same words, it feels constructive. When this other Torah reader, we don't know his name, so it's not Lashon hara. don't worry, we're not like blasting this guy. But when, that, when he read it, This young boy heard curses. When his father read it, he didn't hear curses. Which reveals a greater truth. Text number nine. Page 148. The Shach al-Torah says the following. At surface level, it is admonishment and threats. In other words... The content of our Torah portion, the 98 curses, are admonishments and threats. But in the hidden meaning, it is God's love and words of love. Secretly, it is entirely words of comfort. And this is the great paradox of this week's Torah portion. On the surface, there are 98 curses. And the curses are one of them, each one is worse than the next. But the one before, it gets worse and worse and worse. And we talked about the last one, Egypt and old trauma and ripping open old wounds and going by land, a a, a treacherous journey that you know you faced, you've conquered with help, and now you're alone, and now you know it's not going to work. And then boats and ships and slavery, it's going to be, and no one wants you, and then it's death and horrific. And here we have another way to read it. A way to read it and not get sick to your stomach but rather to read it in an entirely different way. To read it as God's love and words of love and words of comfort, as the shach says, text number nine. So how is it possible? How is it possible? What does it mean? So I need to tell you one thing right off the bat. This is going to be, I'm just going to drop this. Don't have time to elaborate because we have another big idea to, to, to develop. So let me just drop this one idea very quickly. And that is... We've talked about this before. The greatest blessings. The greatest blessings come down sometimes in the most obscure ways. I think we had a Torah studies class not that long ago where we spoke about this. Where you have a blessing that comes from a lower level is more readily understood. A blessing that comes from a higher level seems like something negative. But really it's a positive. We could say the same thing over here. The words of blessing, and this really addresses what Mark said before. Why are we ending with the curses? Why not end with the blessings? And the answer is, because in truth, we're ending with the greatest blessings. The blessings that appear as curses. So yeah, there's a way to read them as 98 curses. And there's a whole philosophy built out on that as I said at the beginning of the class two weeks before our Shoshana, we have to cleanse ourselves out scour the pots and the pans scour our souls and, 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 and do a deep clean and it's, it's abrasive and it's not, so, it's not so comfortable that's on a basic level that's on a basic level of understanding but on a deeper level on a Hasidic level if you were to hear the outer Rebbe the founder of Chabad read this Torah portion you wouldn't hear a curse you would hear words of love you would hear a message of love because embedded in these in these in these words, in these verses, are really constructive messages that speak to our, our power and our goodness. So what we're going to do now for the next 15 minutes or so, give or take, is reimagine the last verse about Egypt. And returning on the same route by land and now adding a ship to the whole, to the journey. We're going to reread this through the lens of mysticism, of Hasidic philosophy from a lens of love, instead of through the lens of a curse. So let's do it. And now we get into time travel. So what is time travel? Everyone, I would imagine, would love to go back in time and do something differently, right? Whether it's um, betting against the Falcons in that Super Bowl and the Patriots, (laughs) right? Or, sorry, too soon, all of my Atlanta friends. Or maybe it's uh, not saying that thing that you said to that person way back when. Or maybe it's doing that thing that you were afraid to do way back when, right? Maybe it's not doing that thing that you did do back in the day. But all of us know how our lives have unfolded till now, where we are, and we know it's the product of so many different choices. And what would we give to be able to go back in time and maybe undo or do differently one or two or 200 of those choices? We'd all... I think we'd all be at least intrigued at the opportunity. I think, you know, some of that, if you're familiar with Back to the Future, remember where his picture starts disappearing? Yes, because he changed something and his parents didn't meet or something, or his mom married. I forget the plot exactly, but whatever. I think I'm getting it more or less. And suddenly his picture and his wallet is disappearing. Oh, no. And you're wondering, like, does that work? Then how is he there? Why is his picture disappearing? Who is he he? All right, whatever. They never answer these questions. I have a beef with these. Uh... Anyway, the point is like this. We'd all wanna go back. I can't say we'd all want to, maybe you don't want to, but many of us will, would love to go back for you know, one more chance to, to get it right. And we wish, and it's the stuff of science fiction, the stuff of dreams, we'd love to do it. Elon Musk told me in the future that he's planning on building a time machine. He came back with the time machine and just told me a few minutes ago, and that's how I'm telling you. I'm just joking. You know, he announced this, um, this robot guy. You saw that? Did you see the, the robot he just announced on stage this week? Yes, some of you saw it. Okay, super creepy. Anyway, back to our story. Um, time machines, right? The stuff of science fiction and if only. If only. So Kabbalah tells us we do have a time machine. We do have a time We can, yes, we can, C-A-N, no apostrophe T. So we, we can go back to the past and change things. And there's a word for this in Hebrew, a word that I think you all know. And if you don't, you're about to know it. And if you do, you're about to know it again. And the word is, I know you're, you guys are muted, but you can say it with me in the comfort of your own space, or right here with me in the room, the word is teshuva. Teshuva. Teshuva is going back, returning. Teshuva literally means return, but seen from a different perspective. Teshuva is revisiting the past. Shuva is going back and reclaiming the past and changing it. You can't change what you did, but you can change what it meant. What, you, what the meaning of what you did. Because everything has a body and a soul, even our actions. Everything has a body and soul. I'll give you a very simple example. You say something to a loved one that's hurtful. And that causes a fracture in the relationship. That creates distance. There's closeness. You said something. Not nice or whatever it is, you created a fracture in the relationship. So that's the way we typically look at it is ah, I wish I wouldn't have said that. But it's done, it's in the past, it's locked until we have a time machine. I can't go back and undo it. Tshuva steps in with the cape, right? Tshuva with the superhero, superpower. We all have the superpower, Tshuva, right? We step in with a cape. And we have the ability to go back. What does it mean to go back? You can't, we can change what we said, no. But we can change the meaning of what we said. What does that mean? Imagine. I know I said something that was hurtful. And I know that that caused a fracture in the relationship. And because of that, I feel, I feel terrible. I feel bad. It's eating me up inside. And I'm broken hearted about it. And all I want to do is fix that relationship. And that inspires me, listen to this. what I, The negative theme that I said inspires me today to do something more, to heal the relationship, to be more sensitive, more dedicated to the other, to my beloved. If, if that's the outcome, sorry, if that's the outcome that I choose today, from that action that I did in the past, then I've changed the definition of that past action. Instead of it being an action that ripped two people apart, it's an action, or I said something, it's a, it was a, an utterance that ultimately brought two people closer together. In other words, if I work hard, you might want to call it compensate or fix whatever you want to call it heal if i work harder to heal the relationship with greater passion than i had before greater sensitivity greater love greater respect etc than i had before turns out that this action was the greatest thing i could have done teshuva gives us the ability to go back in the past and redefine it not change what we did but change the impact of what we did. Change the import. Change the meaning. Change the definition. Change the soul. Redefine the spirit of that past action. You might be thinking, is that true with everything? Can I really change everything? I don't know. We would have to play it out with scenarios. We don't have enough time to go through each and every one of these myriad of scenarios, so we'll have to just conjure it up in our mind. But you did something that was hurtful. That itself. Feeling the pain. Recognizing the hurt. Being empathetic to the other that you hurt. Can now, spur, can now encourage you, motivate you, be the catalyst to work even harder to make things right and to be a better person. And it turns out that that negative thing made you a better person. And that's how you redefine it. That's how you go back in the past. I want to share with you another element to this. Now we're going to get mystical. So that's how Tshuva has the power of time travel. I hope that made sense. But now we're going to go even deeper or maybe, I don't know, deeper but more mystical. Kabbalah teaches, and I'm going to do this very quickly, and uh, I'm going to try to be as clear as possible. Kabbalah teaches that everything in existence, everything that exists, has a spark of godliness inside of it. You want to call it a soul? Sure. A spark? Absolutely. A soul spark? Great. You've just combined the two. Whatever. Everything has an element of holiness, of godliness, of light, a spark inside If it wouldn't, it wouldn't exist. If it were not to have something divine inside, it wouldn't exist. Matter, this is the Kabbalistic understanding, this is an axiom in Judaism and Kabbalah, that nothing physical exists on its own without a spiritual battery pack. Everything has a piece of God, a spark of God inside. Human beings and animals and plants and minerals, even a rock that can't roll on its own, Rock and roll, right? Even a rock that can't roll is uh, who passed away? The drummer of yeah, the, rolling the, stone, yeah. the Rolling Stones? Yeah. The Rolling Stones was the Rolling Stones? Yeah. All right. Anyway, even a stone that doesn't roll, it's inert. It's just sitting there. Has a soul? There is also has a spark inside. Here's where Kabbalah. Let's, 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 so that's general idea. Let's go further. There are two types. Three types of spark experiences. Experience number one is where the spark is inside of something, right? So the spark is inside, there's something on the outside that's encasing it. The thing on the outside is transparent to the spark. So when you look at it, it's divine. You see it, it's holy. Like a Torah scroll, like a mitzvah, a Shabbat candles. You look at it, oh, it's a mitzvah. So you look at it and you see the purpose, you see the potential, you see the divine inside of it. You see it, it's, tra- it's clear. It's like those uh, Nothing Ear One earbuds. If you know what I'm talking about, great. If not, don't stress. Yeah, you look at it, it's clear, you see it. You guys, listen, I'm keeping everybody on your toes. You guys gotta keep up with, um, with technology and, and stuff and old 80s references for, um, for media. Now, back to our story. So that's category one. Category number two, the soul, the spark of godness is inside something physical that covers the spark. You can't see it, but you can access it. Kind of like a peel. Oh, a clipa, that's a good example. Like a banana peel. Right? A banana peel, where there's something inside that's edible, something outside that's not so edible. Don't try to eat it. My grandfather tells, told the story of his father who tried to eat a banana with the peel, and he never, his dad, my great grandfather, never had another banana in his life because it tasted so bad. So peel the banana, easily accessible, boom. And then there's another category of spark scenario where the spark is so hidden and embedded inside the thing that you can't extract the spark. You just can't. You can't. It's like, imagine like a nut, like a hard shell, and you can't, no matter what tool you use, you can't crack it. You can't can't pull out the, uh, the edible part inside. And so this explains what a mitzvah is, what a sin is, and what regular life is. A mitzvah is the spark is shining through. A sin is, don't touch it, you can't get that spark out of it. right? Even if you eat it, do it, engage in it, have fun with it, you're not going to pull out the spark, so might as well just don't engage, because our job is to elevate the sparks, is to access and release the sparks. So this thing is too, too boxed in, you're not going to get the spark, stay away from it. The middle category, are things that we can access. When you eat, a kosher lunch, so it's not a mitzvah, not a mitzvah, you didn't have to eat that sandwich. But when you eat it and you have good intentions, you can release a spark and elevate the holiness. But if you eat something that's not so kosher, so even though it gave you energy, but the sparks are not elevatable. And this is why we're told these are things Torah tells us these are things to engage with, these are things to avoid. All of the prohibitions of the Torah, Torah says, don't do that, don't touch that, don't go there. Why? Because that thing has a spark, it's holy inside, but you can't access it, so stay away. So a tzaddik, a righteous person, is someone who engages with all of the things that are accessible, spark-accessible, um, and doesn't engage with all the things that are not spark-accessible. Okay. Good. So far, so good. But then there's another category. Not the tzaddik, but the baal Shuvah, the one who does shuvah. What's the baal Shuvah? Baal is someone who has taken a stroll, meandered on the dark side, has engaged in things that weren't so, I mean this euphemistically, weren't so kosher, and who's tasted of the forbidden fruit, so to speak. And in that moment was accessing, was touching things whose sparks were inaccessible, and thus wasting time and energy and, 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 and not, not doing what needed to be done. The power of teshuva to get back to our time travel is to be able to go back to the past and you're not accessing it again, right? But it's the the ability to transform that experience from one in which the spark was not elevated to the spark is elevated. Because why is a person on fire now in a good way? Why is a person enthused and motivated spiritually, Jewishly? Because, in the case of tshuva, because they had been disconnected from God, now they're coming back with even greater fervor, with even greater intensity. So what's fueling the passion? The negativity. This is a way in which we redefine those spark experiences. Instead of having a spark experience that is negative and distracting, now it's one that acts as a catalyst for growth. So this is how we travel back in time, not just in human relationships you know i said something not nice i feel so bad i really respect you i really love you and i'm going to i'm going to prove it to you and so it's it's now the best thing that ever happened to the relationship this is true also with god and the universe where we access things or we touch things that we shouldn't touch and in our in our in our movement to return we're now elevating we're now elevating those opportunities Precisely because we're able to travel back in time conceptually, spiritually, with the power of Teshuvah. Now we can understand the last verse of the 98 curses. The very last curse. It's not a curse, it's a blessing. What's the blessing? You're going to revisit Egypt. Remember when you walked, on, Egypt is not literally the land of Egypt. Egypt represents Negativity. Egypt represents klipa, the shell, the unbreakable shell, the force of evil and impurity. You're going to revisit Egypt because that's what Shuva is. Shuva's is time travel. Shuva's is the ability to go back into the past and go back into those dark spaces and redefine it and reclaim the lost sparks, the lost the missed opportunities. And the Torah tells us that what's going to happen? At the end of the day, what's the greatest thing that can happen? Again, the first half of the class was the worst thing, the negative. Now it's the best thing. What's the best thing that can happen? To go back to Egypt. To reface, To face back up to those demons of our past. To face those moments of struggle. To face those spiritually traumatic moments. To stare them down. And this time, not to be taken as a slave. Not to be sucked in by the experience. Are you with me on this? Remember it said you're going to go and they're not going to take you as a slave. What that means is... Last time when you walked on the dark side, you got sucked in and engaged in negativity. But this time, you will not be taken in by the dark side. You'll not be taken captive by Egypt. You're going to walk into Egypt and stare Egypt down and say, I choose otherwise. Maimonides famously says that how do we know that when you and I, how do we know that we've done shuvah? How do we know that we're changed? It's when the same, using the language of Maimonides, the same person the same place i hope i don't have to break this down too detailed right i hope you get the the uh, the, the the reference if a person sinned with a relationship that they sh- etc so now what is shuva you have the same person the same opportunity the same hotel etc right etc but you make a different choice this time that's when you know you did shuva when you travel down to the same egypt returning on that same path that you came the, the first time. You go back to that same route, to the same place, staring down the same challenge. But this time, you make a different choice. That's when you reclaim those sparks. That's when you can, you've pulled up those sparks from the impossible place, from that place of being stuck, and it wasn't able to be extracted through straightforward means. But now, having been there, and having come back, and having changed oneself, they can be extracted. And now we understand the power of ships. We understand why Egypt in a positive way and why the same route to Egypt in a positive way. Why the ships? Because, as the Rebbe explains, we all need a ship in the stormy waters of life. We're going to end with this text and we'll close it out and hopefully um, walk away with some inspiration. This is going to be... I skipped a lot of texts. I did a lot of them outside from the Tzema Text 12a, B, C, and D. But I want to... I want to read 13b. What's the meaning of a ship? This is how we navigate Egypt successfully. Ships, uh, 13b, page number 156. Ships are designed to protect the person as they traverse a body of water, and so it is in spiritual matters. When a soul is thrust into the raging waters of this world, She, the soul, must have something to protect her from drowning. These are the ships of Torah and Mitzvot. Rashi tells us that, inasmuch as as the discussion here is a situation that's spiraled into sin, right down to the path we were instructed never to go down again, we must doubly so have the protection of these ships. If we know that we live in a world in which, around every corner, is another Egypt or that same Egypt, we can't escape, our vices are always around. We're always going to be tempted. Shuvah means we're able to stare down our kryptonite. We're able to look our nemesis in the eye. Not a person, but a thing. Ourselves. Look in the mirror. And be different this time. Choose differently this time. That's Shuvah. And how do we do that? When we put ourselves in the protective space of Torah and prayer. The boat As it starts raining and we hear the rain on the roof right here i don't know if it's raining where you are but it's raining where we are and i hear the droplets you guys hear that you hear the droplets but guess what we're in a protective space that's what a boat is hopefully a boat is a space where the sea is raging you have a space like the ark think of the ark with the flood a teva boat is a as a haven of protection And so it is in life that as we navigate the the tumultuous waters, the raging waters, the stormy waters of life. Marietta, I don't even know her. Um, as 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 we navigate the stormy waters, somebody wrote it's pouring in Marietta. So I said Marietta, Marietta. Anyway, the point is like this. As we navigate the stormy waves of life, let us remember what provides true protection. And that is, and that is Torah and, I think the Rebbe said prayer here. I don't, want to miss, uh, I don't want to misquote here. Am I correct? 13b? What was 13b? Oh, Torah and mitzvot. I'm going to add prayer also. So we find ourselves now in conclusion. We find ourselves in the month of El. El is, of all the 12 months of the year, El is the time in which, we can, f- we can isolate ourselves a little bit. Hopefully. We should. We can and we should. And if you don't think you can, I'm, tell- I'm giving you permission to, to do this. Take off a day from work. Take off an hour from work. Take off some time on the weekend. Take some time for yourself to be introspective, to think about the stuff that we need to fix, the stuff that we need to change. Don't wait till Rosh Hashanah. I'm not going to say it's too late. It's never too late, but Rosh Hashanah already should be starting the new journey. Don't think about what needs to be done on Rosh Hashanah. Think about that now. Now, now is the time. We have month of El. We still have a um, little under two weeks, plenty of time to take a chesh ben and nefesh, look inside and think about, all right, what do I need to fix? What do I need to change? What do I need to you know, modify and adjust? What's my Egypt? What's my temptation? What's my kryptonite? What's my enemy? Which sparks have I been good at cultivating? Which sparks have I not been good at cultivating? And, uh, and how can I better jump on the ship of protection that will help me navigate through the treacherous waters? And so my friends, as we conclude tonight's class, let's all give ourselves the greatest gift, the gift of taking time, getting onto that ship, putting ourselves in a space of protection, and, um, and choosing a better year, choosing a good year. Our year was fine. Our year was great. Not not a criticism, but if good is good, better is better. All right. Thank you very much for joining me tonight. Uh, Feel free to unmute and jump in with questions, comments, in addition to our in-person experience. You guys have any questions? Made sense? Ray, what you got? Uh, Suppose the person is passed away. How do you change it now? So, in Jewish um, thought, it says that if a person wronged someone who is now, who is no longer with us on earth, physically. So, a few things. Number one, the same process of tshuva applies. Tshuva is acknowledging the wrong, owning up to it, not deflecting it, not blaming someone else, but owning up to it. And recognizing the problem, and then verbalizing the apology, and it says that in the absence of a person, that's the other party being here physically, it says to go to the to go to the cemetery, if you can, if one can, and we go to the grave site, and uh, and we ask, we we bet as we say in Yiddish, you ask for forgiveness. That's it. If you can't get to the cemetery, then. I guess yeah I would say send the facts, but that's so nineties or whatever. You send an email, whatever you 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 send your intent to, to to that to that person wherever they are. But it does say about visiting the cemetery. By the way, it's a tradition before Rosh Hashanah to visit the cemeteries. That's what it says in the code of Jewish law. It's before Rosh Hashanah we visit Jewish cemeteries and we pray by the site of tzaddikim and by loved ones. Before, Not necessarily ask for forgiveness, but in general pray by the kivret tzaddikim, by the grace of the righteous and, and our loved ones. So that's, um, that's the idea. But vis-a-vis relationships, one can still be inspired by negativity. Look, I, I, don't, I, I didn't elaborate on this in the class, but I think we all recognize that catalysts could either be positive or negative, right? A catalyst in life could either be a positive thing that happened—that's a motivating thing—or a negative thing that's now a point of motivation. It's the way life works, right? We mess up, and now we're motivated to fix it to make it better, right? Somebody who's failed might be driven even more than success. Sometimes success ble- uh, breeds complacency, and failure breeds hunger and desire. So, so you know, in our relationships, we mess up because no one's perfect. Right. I, I, I would hope that we're safe enough and we're, um, I, I would hope that we're, you know, able to be vulnerable enough and, and honest enough to realize that we're not perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We're not perfect. It's okay. We don't need to pretend anymore. Like, okay, who are we fooling already? Right? The, um... There was once a chaser, a disciple who came to his Rebbe. And in the course of the conversation, in this meeting, the chassid said about how he's he's got everybody in his he's got everybody tricked, he's got everybody fooled. I don't know the exact context, but he says I have everybody in my in my pocket, in my back pocket. Like I got everyone pulling all the strings. So he said like this. I don't want to mess up the quote, and now I'm I'm like getting a little fuzzy on, on the punchline, after after that whole setup. But it was something along the lines of... Um, to f- Someone who thinks that they've got everybody fooled is a fool. And to fool a fool is no big deal. It's not a, it's not a big deal to fool a fool. Something along those lines. Basically, telling the guy, in a bit of a sharp language, that you think you have everybody fooled, but everybody sees right through you, and the and the only one who thinks, the only one who's being fooled is you, right? You're the only one that doesn't know the truth because you think you have everybody fooled, but meanwhile, everybody sees who you are. Everybody knows who you are. So the only one that doesn't is you who thinks that you have everybody fooled. So and to fool a fool is not a big deal. So that's kind of the message that. This Rebbe gave to this chassid, to this disciple. And I'm sure he took it to heart and and changed his ways. The point is like this. We go through life and, you know, we think, yeah, I'm going to put on this facade and that facade, and everybody's going to think this about me and that about me. At the end of the day, life is not a game. And who are we trying to fool anyway? Life is, might as well live authentically. And to live authentically means that we recognize that we're not perfect. The other one's not perfect. They're going to work on themselves. I'm going to work on myself. That's it. That's it. So yeah, I'm not perfect. Good. Mazel tough. It's not my fault. God didn't create me perfect. My job is to work on it. To pretend like it doesn't exist? What's the point? I'm perfect, right? I want everyone to see me as perfect. There's no mitzvah in that. There's no mitzvah. It's just, it just kicks the work down the road. It just, it just delays the process of actually fixing what we need to fix. Our job is tikkun be metakein to fix things you can't fix something if you don't know the problem so let's wake up and let's recognize it's rosh hashanah coming up i'm not trying to be fire and brimstone i'm just saying honestly rosh Hashanah's coming up there's some things that we can do to tweak let's let's own it let's recognize it let's get it down to work we need to spend our, our lives our time waste energy showing everybody how perfect we are they know they're not perfect. We know we're not perfect. So what's, what's, why, why the game? What are we trying to glossy Instagram our lives for? I mean, Instagram is fine, if, whatever. But I'm saying, like, what's the, spiritually, like, on a deeper level? What's, what's, where's the end? Like, who cares? All right, so everybody thinks that I, what do I need to work on? Bottom line, what do I need to work on to be a better person, to be more of a mensch? At the end of the day, that's what we're talking about. Does this make sense? I hope I'm not, uh, stam uh, you know, going on. Okay, Yaakov, jumping.
1: Um, last night in the class uh, Rabbi Nomi um, pointed out that God's acceptance of our request for Teshuvah is instantaneous and since for God there is no past, present, or future even even God's name is, I was, I am, I will be um, apparently it seems like we, we, we already have our God has already granted our request so Apparently, God doesn't have a problem um, right. with us. We have, a, we have a problem with God, and we have a problem with us, and we have a problem with all these other people. Right. So, you just hit the nail on the head. That this is an in, these are a lot of internal games we're playing with ourselves. Right. Keep running script. We keep running the same, keep, um, running the same racetrack uh, based on our our, our relationships and self esteem and self view that was really hammered into us as children and as fetuses, you know? And, and so I think that really what, what it boils down to is, is, is like you said, spending time, but spending time on how we view ourselves and how we view God. In other words, repairing that relationship and starting that conversation because to me that, that, that seems like these are a lot of self-imposed problems. You know, um, Um, you know uh, pain is breaking your leg suffering is being depressed about the broken leg and how much to work you know it's going to cost us and so you know most of our self-imposed pain is not the initial trauma it's the lifetime of uh, beating ourselves up and feeling victimized and I think that um, going back to Egypt is like Facing our abuser, facing you know, in in deciding, you know what, we're not going to be a victim anymore. We're tired of playing the stupid game. We've done it our whole life, right? And we're not going to. Be a, I uh, just want
0: to uh, jump in on, on the point that you mentioned about pain and suffering. I heard from we had a few years ago, uh, we had Shimona Zuckernik, who is just an amazing person. She's uh, uh, a, a very mystical woman. She teaches Kabbalah. She's a life coach, and she's uh, from South Africa. Studied under. Leah's father, my, my father-in-law, yeah. she gave a definition about suffering. She said, pain is, as you said, objective. It, you know, it hurts. But suffering is the gap between where you are and where you wanted to be or where you expected to be. right? The pain is... Sorry, the suffering is... Right? I needed to run a race tomorrow and now I can't. Right? Because of the broken leg. Right? So the, the pain of the broken leg is the, is the pain. The suffering is... I can't believe I did it and now I can't do this and now I can't do that. It's like, it's like the, the gap between where you are practically and where you wanted to be, where you, where you expected to be, your expectations. And, and I think that ties into the conversation here, which is it's about self-honesty. And that begins with accepting where we are and who we are, not to say we can't get any better, not to not strive. I'm not saying to lower the bar and not strive for anything. I'm saying is to recognize this is where we are this is who we are and we honestly look and assess and work with where we are and what we've got like the outdriver says in Tanya right outdriver says in Tanya what's the biggest problem that the banani can make is thinking is it like, a person who prays and is frustrated because well, every time I pray I have these distracting thoughts it's just someone who doesn't have self awareness it's like what do you expect to be a well, who says you're a like, what do you expect that you should be free of negative thoughts no, that's your law. Your, 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 your fate is going to be dealing with stuff. So embrace it. doesn't mean don't deal with it because this is who I am. It's not, you know, I'm not perfect, therefore I might as well do whatever I want. Of course not. That's not, that's not the end of this conversation. It's recognizing who we are and then working to better it. Not pretending we're something else. Not bemoaning our fate, but, but doing the work. All right, I actually have to run. I want to wish you all a wonderful evening. Erev Tov, lots of blessings. We'll see you all. Bye, everybody. Have a wonderful night. Thank you. Take care. To good health.